welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Rob Garrett. After service in the RN's communications branch, I now work in the Naval History section within the Sea Power Centre Australia. Held within the collection of the Australian War Memorial is an Iranian naval ensign captured by the RAN during a little-known operation in World War II. In 1941, the sloop HMAS Yarra and the RAN-manned British armed merchant cruiser HMS Canimbla took part in what was known as the Anglo-Iraq War and later participated in the Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran. Both operations were designed to counter German influence in Iraq and Iran and secure the Allies' vital oil supplies. During these actions, HMAS Yarra was commanded by Lieutenant Commander Hastings Arch Harrington. Harrington would later go on to attain the rank of Vice Admiral and become Chief of Naval Staff from 1962 to 1965. For this episode, in a first for the Australian Naval History podcast series, I am joined by a father and son. They are Rear Admiral Simon Harrington, who was the son of Arch Harrington. During his career, Simon commanded the frigates Canberra and Adelaide and as a flag officer was Support Commander Navy and Head of the Australian Defence Staff in Washington. Since retiring from the RAN, he has, at various times, served on the Repatriation Commission, the Council of the Australian War Memorial, as an executive coach and mentor. Also joining me is Commander Bart Harrington, who is the grandson of Arch Harrington and is currently serving as the Deputy Director of Global Commitments in the Military Strategic Commitments Branch at Defence Headquarters. I am also joined by Chief Petty Officer Peter Cannon. Peter is an Electronics Communications Specialist currently serving in HMAS Canberra. Peter has previously seen operational service in the Persian Gulf in HMAS Manura. He is a former Naval History Instructor at the Royal Australian Naval College and has written on the RAN's role in Operation Marmalade. Good morning, gentlemen, and thank you for joining me. First off, to set the political scene in Iraq, Peter Cannon, can you briefly explain the situation there in 1941? No worries, Robert. The strategic situation in 1941, as it was seen to the British, it has to be looked at as a combination of two factors. Firstly, it was Iraq's position um, for British Empire communications between, say, the Mediterranean and India, which was quite important. Um, So it was all about location as far as Iraq is concerned. And secondly, um, it was the oil supplies that both Iraq and Iran were furnishing the British Empire. They were the major source of oil for, for the British Empire war effort. And essentially, that oil from that region um, not only provided oil to the UK, but it provided all of the oil needed for all of the forces serving in the, um, in the eastern Mediterranean at the time. So British economic and later strategic interest in the, in the area uh, went all the way back to the early 17th century. But by the early 20th century, it was mainly all about the oil um, that had been discovered in Iran. And at that particular point, technology was driving the Royal Navy to transfer from coal to, to oil. The UK had a lot of coal, didn't have any oil. So um, securing those interests in the um, Persian Gulf uh, was vital to the British at, um, at the time. As far as Iraq goes, it was part of the Ottoman Empire. But when that collapsed after the First World War, the um, United, um, United, the League of Nations, I should say, at that particular time, gave the mandate for Iraq to Britain, which was which was quite handy for the British, of course. But they had defeated the Turks in that area. Um, by 1932, the British had handed um, control over to the local inhabitants, but they also managed to extract a treaty from the Iraqis, and that treaty was supposed to last for 25 years. It's the main drive of the treaty was to give um, Britain rights to be able to maintain two air bases in Iraq um, near Basra, near the major port city of Basra, and also uh, one outside of Baghdad called Havaniaya. And those air bases were quite important for the developing air route between the Middle East and India. So essentially you could send aircraft from London all the way to India, but you needed to go through Iraq. Um, and the second one was the right of transit for military forces. Um, so Britain had the right to land troops in Iraq to pass through to Palestine which was also a mandated territory, and through to the um, and through to the Middle East. So by 1941, Britain and the Empire are fighting in the Mediterranean, um, and the Kirkuk oil fields in Iraq supplied a 1,200-mile pipeline, which essentially fed oil from those Kirkuk oil fields through to Haifa in Palestine, and and essentially to um, to power the Royal Navy, the British Army, and the Royal Air Force in that area. And in Iran, since the 20th, the early 20th century, the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company later now known as British Petroleum or BP, um, that was um, was a very major operation with a massive refinery on an island in, um, called Abadan, and that was on the Shadow Arab River, which serves as the border between Iran and Iraq. That was um, 
it was a British concession. Um, they, they owned it, they managed it, but they had to pay royalties to, um, to the Iranians. So essentially the Persian Gulf was um, Britain's primary source of oil. Um, and control of the Persian Gulf um, fitted into um, the safety of the Indian Ocean as well. And because of um, Iran, Iraq, Aden and all those areas feeding into that security, um, that brought in British India as well. So it was essentially British India, in British India's interest to defend the Middle East as, as part of its own security. Now, what happened in 1941 was um, the former Prime Minister of Iraq, um, Rashid Ali al-Ghulani, he was a long-term opponent of the treaty. He was a nationalist, and he had a bunch of Iraqi army officers that felt the same way. So they instituted a coup on the 1st of April 1941, um, and the regent at the time, who was ruling for the infant King Faisal II, was deposed. And because they were actually... um, pro-Axis group of army officers and Rashid Ali, they actually appealed to Hitler for support and Hitler agreed, although he didn't end up doing a hell of a lot about it. So to control the situation in Iraq, um, the British needed to show a force. So they got the uh, the Indian army to um, be dispatched to Basra, some troops, and this was going to be covered under their military rights to pass these troops through Iraq, um, through Palestine, into the Middle East ostensibly. But substantial naval reinforcements were also required, so the light cruiser HMS Emerald was ordered to Basra. And secondly, one of the convoys, the first convoy, you know, I should say, was convoy BM-7, and it carried 6,158 soldiers from the 20th Indian Infantry Brigade. And they sailed from Karachi on the 12th of April, and they were escorted by one ship, and that was the Australian sloop HMS Yarra. So the naval units were to be on hand at Basra, if Iraqi forces chose to oppose the disembarkation of the Indian Army units. Wow, it sounds like there's a lot of convergent interests in this strategically crucial region. Bart Harrington, can you briefly describe HMAS Yarra and what she had done in the war to date? Yarra was an improved Grimsley-class sloop, which the Royal Navy were building throughout the 1930s. Yarra was commissioned in 1936. She was 81 metres long, had a draft of three metres, Fully loaded, had a displacement of around 1,500 tonnes with a crew of 100 people. Her speed was 16.5 knots and she was armed with three four-inch high-angle guns and four three-pounder guns. Yarra was designed for convoy work and minesweeping. Task she was well suited. At the outbreak of the war, she was conducting anti-submarine patrols off Sydney Heads in company with HMAS Swan. From January 1940, Yarra, as part of the 20th minesweeping flotilla, that also included Swan and two auxiliary minesweepers, conducted uh, sweeping activities in areas such as Bass Strait and off Fremantle, ahead of the AAF convoys. At the end of May 1940, she proceeded into refit in Sydney, where she learnt that she would be deploying overseas. On the 28th of of August 1940, she departed Fremantle, never to see Australia again. After a brief stop at the Cocos Keeling Islands, she arrived in Aden, Yemen, on the 18th of September, and on the very first night, was under air attack in her first combat of the war. From this period, she conducted convoy work mostly in the Red Sea, as well as a small amount of blockade action, keeping the Italians bottled in to their African Uh, possessions, which are now Somalia, Eritrea and Ethiopia. Generally speaking, her work was pretty monotonous, with one exception being on the 21st of October 1914, where, when convoying a 30-ship convoy, two Italian destroyers came out and and engaged the convoy. Yarra and the, the sloop HMS Auckland fired upon the destroyers before they were chased off by the cruiser Leander and a destroyer Kimberley. Kimberley pursued one of the destroyers until it ran aground and then Kimberley just torpedoed it and that Italian destroyer blew up. However, Kimberley didn't get away unscathed. She was hit from shore batteries in her engine room and had to be towed by Leander. In mid-March 1941, Yarra left for Bombay and refit. This was completed by the 9th of April where she escorted a convoy back to Basra, Iraq. She had one final task before the Iraq campaign got underway, where, on the 28th of April, she escorted a convoy BP-1 from the mouth of the Shad al-Arab to Basra. This undertaking was the final straw for the pro-German Rashid Ali, 
who ordered his troops to deploy around one of the RAF bases and in an action that eventually put Iraq and Britain at war. Simon Harrington. As we have said, Yarra's commanding officer was your father, Arch Harrington. Can you tell us something of his background and career up to that point? Uh, yes, certainly. He was born in 1906 in Maryborough, Queensland. Um, his father was a barrister. His grandfather had been the uh, manager of uh, Walkers Limited, the foundry that was established up there. He, in fact, was an immigrant from Ireland uh, for, uh, during the gold rush time. Uh, he came out a fairly poor man and did pretty well for himself. His mother was the daughter of the local um, uh, schoolmaster, school headmaster. Uh, he went to the Naval College in 1920 in Jarvis Bay as a 13-year-old and on graduating he served in Brisbane and Adelaide before going to the UK and serving on board HMS Malaya in the Mediterranean. Uh, amongst his achievements he became the fleet welterweight boxing champion of all things and he also was a prize winner for sub-lieutenants uh, obtaining the highest marks in a war college war course essay. On returning to Australia, he served in a number of ships, including the uh, Battlecruiser Australia, the Destroyer Success and the Heavy Cruiser Canberra, and the seaplane carrier Albatross. He then did three years exchange with the Royal Navy, actually on the China Station on board HMS Cornwall, the Heavy Cruiser. Uh, on returning to Australia, he stood by Swan, Yarra's um, sister ship, uh, during her construction and was her first XO. Uh, and after that, he and immediately prior to the war, he was a term officer at the Naval College, uh, which by then was at uh, Flinders Naval Depot. I think it's uh, almost up to the start of World War II, the threat of being made redundant uh, for all officers must have been a bit like a sword of Damocles. Even before he graduated from the college, uh, his, his year, uh, about 50%. Uh, were invited to leave the college because uh, they couldn't afford to continue the training. And the 19 entry uh, that had graduated in 1921 started with 36, but only 12 were allowed to go to sea under training. Of course, then the depression occurred and there were even further cuts. Um, across the board, there were also pay cuts of about 25% for those who didn't get the chop. So I think it was a pretty uh, insecure sort of career to be aspiring to. He'd also aspired to be to specialise in gunnery, but the depression also put paid to that. There just wasn't the money to send him to the UK to do the courses. So I don't think he could have felt at all secure in his chosen career until it was pretty clear that war was about to occur. Peter Cannon, at this point we should mention who commanded the British naval forces in the region and what sort of naval forces did he have at his disposal? Well, overall, the region was the responsibility of the British um, East Indies Squadron, and that was under the command of Vice Admiral Ralph Leatham. And he was in charge over in India, but he had two subordinate commands. One was the Red Sea Force under a Commodore, and then the Persian Gulf Force under another Commodore. And the Persian Gulf Division, I should say, uh, was under the command of a South African officer, and his name was Commodore Cosmo Graham. And he was a bit of a colourful character and um, quite old at the time, I believe, for the rank. Um, but under his command... He had a British sloop, HMS Falmouth, and he had two Indian sloops, the Lawrence and Investigator, as long as a British gunboat, the Cockchafer. He actually flew his broad pennant in an armed yacht, which was probably the thing to do in the Persian Gulf at the time. And that's pretty much all he had. Um, but following the arrival of Emerald and then Yarra, uh, the division was further strengthened by an aircraft carrier, the Hermes, who turned up in the Persian Gulf with 814 Squadron of um, Sawfish aircraft, wasn't a very big aircraft carrier. It's quite small, so I believe she only carried six of the um, of the swordfish. But in that particular area, that was um, that was pretty valuable. And she was escorted by another light cruiser, Emerald Sister Ship, the Enterprise. So. A further cruiser, the New Zealand manned HMS Leander, turned up for a time. Um, Admiral Leatham turned up to have a bit of a look around, but there wasn't too much going on, so he went back to India. Um, because the peace actually held through April, um, Rashid Ali and his um, and his crew were reasonably okay with the British. The um, they were dealing with them reasonably well. And the British were saying, well, we're about to pass troops through your country. They weren't happy about it, but they were essentially waiting on German support. And when they actually felt more secure in their position, um, at the end of April, they started, um, as Bart mentioned, they surrounded the RAF base at Havanaya. And um, the RAF basically got to the point on the 1st of May where they just preemptively started bombing them. And they essentially started hostilities. It wasn't actually the Iraqis. 
So for the Navy, they had a couple of main jobs. They had to um, safeguard Basra as the main port into the area. Um, so that was uh, that was the main thing they were doing, as well as escorting um, in additional reinforcements up the river uh, coming in from India. And the other thing, well, Hermes was actually carrying out um, carrier airstrikes from, from the Persian Gulf and hitting Iraqi targets. But by the end of hostilities at the end of May, um, the Persian Gulf Division had safely escorted 23,000 Indian troops um, up the Persian Gulf and through to Basra. Simon Harrington. Yarra was tasked to support the land forces along the Shat al-Arab. Can you describe the operations of 22 to 24 May? Yeah, certainly. Uh, but before I get into that, perhaps it's worth setting the scene as to where we're talking about. The Shat al-Arab River uh, is formed at the confluence of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. It's about 200 kilometres long and flows into the top or the western end of the Persian Gulf. At its mouth, and for about 100 kilometres back up the river, it forms the border between Iran and Iraq, before the border goes north and leaves the river, and the river is solely in Iraq. Like all major river deltas, the mouth is a maze of shifting islands, sandbars and uh, all sorts of currents. Furthermore, the Karen River, the last of its the major tributaries, uh, and plays an important role in one of the operations we'll discuss shortly, uh, deposits a huge amount of silt into the Shat al-Arab as well. It varies in width from about 400 metres at Basra to about 800 metres at its mouth. The Iranian port of Abadan is on the eastern bank of one of the Delta Islands and the Iraqi port of Basra is about 135 kilometres upstream. The weather there is blistering and miserably hot with temperatures getting up to around 50 degrees Celsius and no cooling breeze. And you've got to remember that Yarra and other ships was little more than a streamlined steel box with no air conditioning, very cramped mess decks for the crew and very little opportunity for rest or recreation for them at that time. While they were operating in the Shadala River, it seems they spent much of their time in three watches. One watch was busy operating the uh, flotilla of small boats on the river while the others were in two watches on board Yarra. The operation about which you ask was attacking and dispersing the Rashid Ali supporters upstream from Basra. The central objective was described as the large house where the supporters were headquartered. Yarra's task, along with two tugs and a couple of dows, or mahalias as they were called, was to transport two companies and a brigade headquarters of Gurkhas from Basra to the area in question and provide fire support and then return to Basra. There was some concern about the water depth, about the landing spot for the Gurkhas and whether it was suitable for the smaller boats to secure to the riverbank and disembark their troops. So the day before, Arch detailed a couple of his sailors off to cross the river and cut out a bellum, which is the local traditional river craft. That night, he took the bellum up river with five of his ship's company, all disguised as locals. Arthur Parry gives quite a vivid account in his book, HMAS Yarra. It goes. Then we heard that a, a soundings expedition was projected. We wondered which officer would be selected to take charge and what was expected to be a hazardous operation. It was the skipper himself who stepped into the boat. A period of suspense followed as they were towed away by the motorboat upriver, vanishing quickly into the darkness. About an hour later they were back again. The expedition had proved entirely successful, all soundings having been taken. They told us that they had proceeded about two miles upstream, towed by the motorboat and then slipped. They made for the bank opposite to their objective and paddled industriously until they were well past the place. Then they altered course across the river, the captain enjoining silence upon all. From then on, orders were given in the barest of whispers to the men next to the captain, being relayed from man to man. In the process of crossing the river, they were carried downstream for some distance by the current. But as usual, the judgment of the Black Prince was excellent, and they brought up in the position required for their first sounding. This the captain took himself with a boat load, uh, sorry, with the boat's lead in line, recording his soundings on a small chart specially prepared for the purpose beforehand, and as it was in the dark, in a manner best known to himself. And so they proceeded from point to another point, taking soundings as they went. Everyone was keyed up, working with the greatest of caution. 
for uh, on the bank nearest and opposite to them were the Iraqi rebels whom we were to bombard the next morning. It was known that they had guards posted and although each, each of our men had been given a rifle, they would not have had much chance to use it if fired upon. Also, the rebels had a dog there somewhere. At last, the whispered word passed to each of them, only one more sounding, men. With the utmost caution and every nerve stretched to breaking point, they now stole to within a few feet of the bank. So close were they, in fact, that they could hear the voices of the guards just over the top, could even smell the cigarette smoke drifting over. Very, very carefully, Arch now took the last sounding and touching the nearest man on the shoulder, indicated that they were now to proceed downstream. After they had been carried some distance on the current, the captain told the men that they, could ha- they had done a good job and could smoke if they wished. Everyone began to talk very fast, and even non-smokers lit up. The strain had been intense. So that's what they did the night before. Um, the next night, the Gurkhas embarked, and they were off uh, the landing spot at 4am. The assault was preceded by a bombardment from Yarra's guns and she continued to provide fire support during the assault as well as engaging targets of opportunity. The operation was very successful with only six fatalities of the assault force and Yarra was back at her anchorage before 10am in the morning. That's incredible. As a follow-up, Simon, Major John Masters, who commanded the Gurkhas, mentions your father in his book The Road Past Mandalay. The book has been described as a military and moral odyssey and one of the greatest of World War II frontline memoirs. What does Masters say about your father? Uh, yeah, in fact, uh, Masters was the adjutant of the battalion of the Gurkhas involved. The battalion commanding officer was Lieutenant Colonel Willie Whelane. Whelans, in preparing for this podcast, I reread both The Road to Mandalay and its prequel, Bugles and a Tiger in which Masters recounts life in the Gurkhas immediately before World War II, when the frontier wars in northwest India, or, or Pakistan as it is now, were still occurring. Reading between the lines, I think Masters and Arch were kindred spirits. They were both totally devoted to their profession and good at it. They each had a pretty high opinion of themselves, were very cool under fire, were pretty brave, didn't tolerate fools well, and they understood the foibles of human nature and that harnessing it was one of the keys to successful leadership. They were both naturally curious people and they both had a great sense of the ridiculous. Uh, Masters describes the scene on the bridge of Yarra just before the assault as follows. Willie and I stood in a corner of the bridge where a dim blue light shone on the captain's strong jaw and curly black cheek whiskers. I remember Arch being pretty chuffed about being written up in such a manner by such a respected author. There's also a pretty funny anecdote that Masters recounts which involves Arch. In the planning stage, there was a discussion as to where the artillery observation post, uh, artillery observation post would be placed. Whelan said the top of the big house was the obvious spot, but Arch said that that wouldn't work as Yarra's guns would have demolished the house by then. So the Gurkhas, with great ingenuity and some effort, constructed a platform that sat on top of a telegraph pole that they'd purloined from somewhere and to which they attached guy ropes. With even greater difficulty, they got the contraption on board Yarra um, to transport upstream. On arrival and prior to the landing, as I said, Yarra fired upon the big house, but it withstood the barrage with very little damage other than a few pockmarks. Masters says the palm trees, which were very dense and surrounded the house, weren't so lucky, as the shells had all ricocheted off them and didn't penetrate through to the house. So the modified telegraph pole ended up in the river and the Gurkhas went back to Plan A and used the big house for their observation post. Parry, in his book, says the house was demolished as a result of Yarra's bombardment. I suspect Masters' recounting of the story is closer to the truth. (sighs) Well, it seems like these gentlemen were early uh, disciples of the old Navy adage, adapt and overcome. Okay. By June 1941, Iraq had the pro-British regime restored. We will now turn to Iran. Peter Cannon, what was the situation in Iran? 
that between the wars, um, Iran was under the control of the Reza Shah uh, Pahlavi, Reza Shah Pahlavi, I should say, um, and he was trying to modernise his country. He had big British investment in the Anglo-Iranian oil company. However, they were only getting a trickle um, of royalties. It was basically tra- treated as British property almost, uh, particularly by Winston Churchill later on in the century. Um, but to modernise, they, they needed um, technical assistance, and he courted particular consist- um considerable German trade and technical investment in the country. So German personnel actually um, took over a, a lot of key key positions um, in Iran, and they were in infrastructure, finance, education, communications, and German engineers also supervised the construction of the um, Trans-Iranian Railway, which was a 900-mile railway, which will become pretty important in a minute, uh, from the the Persian Gulf port of Bandar pretty much all the way up to the Russian border. So they had a very large influence in the country. And by mid-1941, the um, Germans, having invaded the Soviet Union, they were driving very hard and fast into the Soviet Union and the Russian armies were melting away and everyone was rather scared that they were going to, going to go under. So at that particular point, the British saw a direct German military threat to their oil fields in Iran. And also, even if there was no direct or military threat, all of these um, Germans in prominent positions at Iran, uh, they could act as a fifth column and generally you know, cause havoc for British interests in the area. So the, the British were quite concerned about it. Um, so as a result, the British exerted diplomatic pressure on the Iranians to get rid of these Germans, but the Shah wasn't having any of it. He, he played for time and he was also appealing to the Germans for, for help because reading the tea leaves as he did at the time, everyone was expecting the Germans to, to win the war. Um, so from early July, the British actually began exploring a joint Anglo-Soviet invasion, which was kind of ironic because the Soviets had actually been planning to invade Iran and kick the British out at one point. And the British had spent to this date worrying about a Russian invasion of Iran. So now it was, they, they were allies and they were best mates. So they... Very strange bedfellows. Uh, yeah, well, it was war. And um, keeping the German armies in the field was doing the British uh, and us a very, very big favour. So Churchill put it to Stalin, hey, how about we invade the place together? And, sh- and Stalin, of course, said, sure, um, let's do that. On 13th of August, 1941, Britain and Russia agreed to issue notes to Reza Shah about removing the German presence. Expecting an unsatisfactory response, Iran was invaded on the 25th of August. Peter, can you explain the overall British concept of operations? Well, if diplomatic measures failed, and they were expected to fail, as you said, um, the plan was to use force to take the British uh, oil installations and the and the Iranian oil fields, essentially. Um, so the operations were to come under the control of General Archibald Wavell in India, because as I said before, these operations in the area were the responsibility of um, British India. And um, there wasn't enough forces in Iraq at the time, so they had to draft in more from India and some from the Mediterranean. And they were under the command of General Edward Quinnan, who was also um, was British, of course, but he was Indian Army. So plans for the occupation of the refinery and the oil fields had actually existed for many years. So they just had to be dusted off and, um, and modified to suit the, uh, the circumstances of the time. We're talking about the Navy, of course. So the Navy would be responsible for the amphibious landings against positions in the Shadow Arab, including the Abadan oil refinery. Um, and the Army would drive overland from Iraq, and eventually they would drive into Iran and meet up with the Soviets driving in from the north. So the 8th Indian Infantry Division's 24th Brigade was allocated to the amphibious landings to be supported by um, Commodore Graham's Persian Gulf Division. The Soviets were decidedly more heavy-handed and they used the army that they'd already prepared and had ready. Um, And that was the 53rd Independent Central Asian Army. It was around 120,000 men and only 1,000 tanks. So this force was over six times the size of the British forces. Simon Harrington, what forces did the British have at their disposal for the Iran operations? Uh, Cosmo Graham was instructed in July 41 that the strongest force available was to be made ready for the occupation of Abadan and Karamashar. Uh, and that was to be ready by the 29th of July. Um, but preparations continued throughout August, in fact. A number of operations were going to be mounted simultaneously, with surprise being vital to each one of them. To achieve this, Graham requested reinforcements from uh, the Commander-in-Chief in East Indies. And although no destroyers or sloops could be spared, the Australian manned armed merchant cruiser HMS Canimbla, under Captain William Adams, RN, was ordered to join Graham from Bombay. Due to the limited number of commissioned warships, Graham was forced to scrape together an eclectic range of supporting craft, including um, considerable support from the Anglo-Indian Oil Company um, to support the naval aims of the operation, 
and there were three operations, which uh, we'll co cover in a minute. Uh, so by mid-August 41, uh, forces available were as, uh, were as follows. For Crackler, HMS Seabell, uh, which carried the flag of Senior Naval Officer uh, Persian Gulf, HMS Shoreham, HM Indian ship Lilivati, two armed river steamers, the Isan and the Zenabai, and five Eureka motor boats, which are light landing craft, two motor dows and a motor launch. For Marmalade, which would uh, attack Karamashar, there was HMS Falmouth, who was the senior officer, HMAS Yarra, Her Majesty's Kenyan launch Balika, and the River Tug Soraya. For Bishop, HMAS, HMS Canimbla, which I mentioned, the gunboat HMS Cockchaffer, the corvette HMS Snapdragon, the minesweeping trawler HMS Arthur Cavana, an armed dow na uh, Naive, two Anglo-Indian oil company tugs, and an RAF motor launch, launch number 20. While existing Persian Gulf uh, Division ships were all based at Basra, Canimbla, which had arrived from Bombay on the 5th of August, was anchored in shallow water some 30 miles south of the Shatel Arab light vessel. From there, she acted as a rallying point for the units that would uh, lead into action. Well, that's a very impressive achievement to coordinate such an eclectic mix of forces. Uh it was about all they had. They didn't really have much choice. Um, the Mediterranean situation at that time was rather perilous. And um, with the threat in the area, that's it's pretty much all they needed. It, was, it looks like a mess on paper, but um, it was going to do the job. And as I understand it, they acquitted themselves quite well during these operations. Bart Harrington, I briefly mentioned HMS Canimbla. Can you tell us something of the ship? And why was it an Australian manned Royal Navy ship? So, uh, Canimbla started life as a coastal cruise ship, and she was built in Belfast, Northern Ireland, um, purchased by an Australian shipping company, and she was finally completed in 1936 before proceeding to Australia. And prior to the war, she spent most of her time moving between Perth, Adelaide, Sydney, Melbourne, Cairns, and uh, Mackay. She had a few unique characteristics. Firstly, she was probably the most luxurious accommodation uh, of any ship on the Australia. Uh, around Australia at the time and more interestingly she was unique in that she was the only passenger ship that was built with an operational radio broadcasting station within her which she would transmit around the Australian coast as she moved along. She had a speed of 17 knots and she was just shy of 11,000 tonnes at least as a merchant vessel. Her draft was 6.8 metres and she was 147 metres long. So a few days after the Second World War started, she was requisitioned by the Royal Navy, and this was done due to a previous agreement between the shipping company and the Admiralty. She was refitted and armed with seven six-inch guns, two three-inch anti-aircraft guns, and a few Lewis light machine guns. She was manned by Royal Australian Navy sailors, mostly reservists, and this is mostly because she was already in Australia and there were sailors available. On the 6th of October 1939, she was commissioned as HMS Canimbla and she was under the command of Cap, uh, Commander Getting. She proceeded to the China station with her 343 crew and as I said, most of these reservists. Now, Getting had a few issues with these due to a back-to-Australia attitude that many of them held. And the, uh, the core of this was a misunderstanding by a lot of the reservists that they had the same conditions as militiamen in Australia and that they couldn't actually be sent overseas. And he's quoted as saying, I had to correct this impression in quite certain terms. So he had his hands filled making sure the crew was operating uh, how he needed them. But he wasn't alone in this, because we know Waller in Stewart at the time had similar problems. As a follow-up, Bart, what role was Canimbla playing in all this? So prior to the operations commencing, Canimbla was uh, operating in the Indian Ocean doing convoy and uh, escort duties. By this time, she had a new captain, who was acting Captain W. Adams of the Royal Navy. He'd taken over in March 1941. Canimbla uh, arrived off Kuwait on the 8th of August, and Adams was designated the senior officer for what became known as Force B. Now, we've outlined the assortment of vessels 
uh, that Force B was assigned previously. But one uh, contemporary described them as surely the most oddly assorted flotilla that ever flew the White Ensign, which I think is an apt description. Adams quickly uh, got Force B training for their uh, assault on Banda Chapur and uh, with also the intent of capturing whatever merchant ships were in the port at the time. Canimbal in particular developed five boarding parties for the operation. Now the conditions for their training was quite arduous with uh, 38 degrees on most days and a sea state that was not conducive to boat ops. While doing the training, they also patrolled off the mouth of the Shadal Arab and the Khor Musa, which was the inlet leading to Banda Shapur at the very northern tip of the Persian Gulf. The boarding parties were trained in salvage work and uh, contingency planning in the event that the Axis merchant ships tried to scuttle themselves, which indeed they did. On the 16th of August, Adams declared Force B ready for the operation ahead. During this time, he had uh, considered how he'd bring Canimbla into the port, and he had two real options. One was a day approach, where he'd be able to see most of the navigation hazards, or the alternate being at night, where he could achieve surprise. In the end, he chose the latter, and to mitigate the navigation risks, he got the Dow and the RAF launch assigned to him to place hurricane lamps on the unlit navigation marks. His main concern here was, was such a flat approach that from as far as 15 miles away, Canimbla would have been sighted. Now, there's an interesting quote by uh, Cosmo Graham about Canimbla, which I think draws some interesting parallels with her successor 60 years later. He said, Canimbla, a 12,000 tonne armed merchant cruiser, a ship which at first sight appeared most unsuitable as a reinforcement for work in narrow waters, but which turned out to be probably the only ship in the Navy which could have supplied what I required in the way of a great number of hands, faster administrative endurance and spacious accommodation. Canimbla too, during uh, the Persian Gulf operations in the uh, early 2000s, had exactly the same characteristics and was operating in almost identical waters. Peter, I understand that you're quite familiar with the exploits of Canimbla. Would you like to add anything to that? Well, I would. Um, the interesting thing about Captain Adams, um, he's gone down in Australian naval history as um, the arch villain um, on HMAS Perth as her second in command earlier in the war. Um, Perth's crew didn't take to him very much in that particular role, and authors have um, spent the last 80 years pretty much castigating him um, as not being efficient and all the rest of it. After that experience with Australians, he got sent to captain another ship full of Australians uh, with the exact opposite result of um, the fact that they all loved him. I interviewed many Kinimbala sailors over the years, quite, quite some time ago now, and not one of them had a bad word to say about Adams, and that was uh, that was across junior sailors and some of his more senior officers as well. So it's just interesting that um, Australian naval history has completely forgotten about this guy, except that apparently he was a, he wasn't very well liked in HMAS Perth. So I just thought I'd correct that. I, I think there's an interesting contrast there with uh, the issues Getting was also having initially with Canimbler and the reservists, and then their apparent uh, high performance during Operation Bishop and his ability, Adam's ability to uh, whip them into some effective boarding party teams there. So there must be something in it that's uh, not well written about. Well, getting, um, getting did have some trouble early on. I'm not, I'm not sure whether it's been blown out of proportion or not, but these guys didn't have any sea, sea experience at all. And all ships in the Australian squadron, let alone the ones that have been commissioned by reservists, they all had their teething problems. Um, the other armed merchant cruisers that we manned, Arrow and Moreton Bay, had exactly the same problems. Telegraphists were getting sent home from Hong Kong because they just couldn't use a Morse key. Um, there was all of those sort of issues early on. But by the time that um, the operations we're talking about, Canimbra had seen a lot of extensive service, including a lot of boarding operations under Captain Getting, so she was pretty much, she was ready for this operation by mid-1941. On the morning of 25 August, operations against Iran were to begin. Peter Cannon, what were they? Well, um, both Simon and Bart have already touched on, on aspects of it, but just to recapitulate, the principal aim of Operation Countenance was first and foremost the capture of the Anglo-Iranian oil, um, oil companies' fields and also the refinery at Abadam. So, 
preferably intact as well, um, because all refineries by nature are rather inflammable. And the Iranians, it was Iranian territory, and they were expected to defend it. So the British had actually underestimated the resolve of the Iraqis three months earlier, and they weren't going to make that mistake again. So um, the Iranians were to be neutralised in order to safeguard the landings. Now, the main body of the Iranian Navy at the time only consisted of two sloops, the Babra and Palang, and also four gunboats, the... Um, Oh God, these names are right. The Chiro, the Samorg, the Carcass and the Charbaz. Now, all these ships have been built in Italy in 1931, all, all at the same time. So they were modern and they're expected to be reasonably efficient, as were the Iranian army. So the first and most important operation was, was codenamed Crackler, as has been mentioned by, um, by one of the other two gentlemen here. Uh, this operation would involve landing Indian troops on Abadan, and it was um, the most sensitive one, of course, um, to capture the refinery. And it also had to neutralise Palang that was lying alongside. So it was going to lead, be, be led personally by Commodore Graham in his armed yacht Sabelle, um, supported by the sloop Shoreham, with um, the eclectic group of small craft landing the Indian troops on actually on the island. So the force was going to deploy from Basra and sneak down the river 12 miles to Abadan in absolute silence before going in at dawn. So time to coincide with this was Crackler, um, sorry, with Operation Marmalade, I should say. Now, the Iranian Shadow Arab naval base of Khorramshah was on the way to Abadan. Um, so the Abadan strike force actually had to sneak past the main base of the Iranian Navy um, to, to get down to its target. So alongside Khorramshah was the sloop Babra, also the two gunboats Chiro and Samorg, the depot ship Ivy, one tug, two dows, but approximately a thousand personnel in the, in the barracks as well. Now, this operation was under the command of Commander James in HMS Falmouth and he had HMS Yarra in support. The third major operation, um, and all three of these these three operations were going to going concurrently, I should say, um, was Operation Bishop, as we've mentioned before. There were five German and three Italian merchant ships in the port. They'd been stuck there since their respective governments had declared war, precipitously in the case of the Italians, on Britain. So when they declared war, the British Navy ruled all these waters and they had no choice but to essentially turn themselves in Iran. Um, so they were still sitting there and the British were eyeing them off as they looked pretty nice. Uh, we'll take those because your U-boats are sinking a lot of our ships. So that was the aim of that particular um, operation, but also to secure the railhead um, at Bandishapur for the Trans-Iranian Railway, that 900-mile um, railway up to the Russians. So that was quite quite important. And as mentioned, Captain Adams Force B would deploy directly from its holding positions in the northern Persian Gulf up the Kormusa, with Kanimbala in the lead essentially to... Um, to take on the two Iranian gunboats, Carcass and Charbaz, the whole reason they were in the port was essentially to look after the German and Italian ships. So upon completion of Crackler, Marmalade and Bishop, there was three follow-up operations, which were, which were minor. One was mop-up. It involved the capture of the, the city of Kazalabad and the clearing of Abadan Island. And that was going to be um, undertaken by the forces used for Crackler under Commodore Graham. The second one was Karen River, which was convoyed troops and supplies upriver from Khorramshah to capture the southwestern city of Arwaz using six tugs manned with naval crews. And finally, Operation Bunda Abbas would see Yarra seize and remove one Italian merchant ship, uh, the Hilda, which was, like the others up at Banda Shapur, sheltering in the Iranian port of Banda Abbas on the northern shore of the Straits of Hormuz. Were the Iranian forces caught completely unawares or was there rumblings that this invasion was possible? There was plenty of indication. The Iranian ministers knew, the Shah knew, the Iranian ministers might have been playing a little bit of, um, how do I put it, they might have been filtering information through to the Shah, but the Iranians certainly knew. But the thing for the Iranian forces were they had, um, they had machine gun posts all the way up and down the Shadow Arab. But the problem was the British had been spending months putting forces up and down the river, including at night. So on the night of the invasion, when these British forces sailed past them, the Iranians didn't really see anything wrong with that. Uh, so there were plenty of indications the Iranians just didn't realise the assault was going to go in. Simon Harrington, can you take us through Yarra's exploits? Yeah, sure. Um, as an introductory thing, uh, we've talked about the importance of the element of surprise, and this was particularly so... Uh, for the marmalade and crackler things because there was only about um, eight miles difference between uh, where those operations were going to occur. Um, the crackler forces sailed from Basra at about midnight and they were then followed by the marmalade forces. Unfortunately, Falmouth, with um, uh, the commanding officer, ran aground uh, as it was leaving, uh, leaving Basra and it had embarked uh, two platoons in the company headquarters of the 3rd 10th Baluch Regiment. Uh, 
So that left only one platoon of the uh, the landing force on board Yarra. Even so, uh, Arch decided Yarra and the other forces, uh, including the uh, the Kenyan boat and um, the Soroya, which which in fact was part manned by Yarra's crew as well, um, they went downstream by themselves. Um, Arch was worried that the forces of Koromashar would interfere with the Crackler operations and given he only had one platoon embarked, decided to sink the Barbara as opposed to the initial plan that she should be boarded and secured by Falmouth's boarding party. On arrival, he concealed Yarra's presence behind an anchored merchant ship called the uh, the Varela. He illuminated, um, and as soon as he heard gunfire from the Abaddon force, he pulled out from behind it and illuminated the Barbara and opened fire. After about 10 salvos, the Barbara was a blazing wreck. Um, she exploded astern and sank alongside. He then proceeded up the Curran River, raking the shoreline and the decks of the other vessels with machine gun and small arms fire. She came alongside the outer of the two gunboats and within 10 minutes both were secured by boarding parties from Yarra about 45 minutes after Yarra had first opened fire. By then, Falmouth was well and truly on her way, and Arch decided to await her arrival as he considered it too risky to land a single platoon he had on board, uh, as it was thought there were about a thousand um, uh, Iraqi sailors around, Iranian, sorry, sailors around. By then, some 60 Iranians and Italians who were serving with them had been taken prisoner and were held on board Yarra. Falmouth eventually secured alongside the ivy at 5.30 and the soldiers were landed almost immediately. They secured the naval base and the town of Koromashar without much resistance, perhaps because the Iranian naval commander, Admiral Bayenda, was killed while leading the resistance to the Baluchi forces. The prisoners, except for some Italian engineers that were on board the gunboats, were transferred to the ivy. The engineers readily agreed to return to the gunboats uh, and get the engines into working order and had done that by the evening. So Yarra had completed all that was required of her by 21.30 when she slipped and proceeded downstream to Bandar Abbas. As Arthur Parry sums it up, and so ends the tale which makes Yarra the first Australian ship ever to sink or capture half an enemy navy before breakfast. It must have been during this action that Arch uh, acquired the Iranian ensign that is now in the Australian War Memorials collection, uh, and which you mentioned in your introduction. I found it in a brown manila envelope in a sea chest at home and donated it to the memorial when I became a councillor there in 2007. These stories are the stuff of absolute legend. I know he later went on to achieve great things, including becoming Chief of Naval Staff, but... Did he ever regale you with these stories growing up or was this stuff that he sort of reflected back on later? Uh, no, not much. Um, uh, I, as I say, I was 17 when he died and I suspect he thought I was a bit young. Um, he occasionally talked about things that happened in, in the war, but much more on a strategic thing, certainly not about this. Bart Harrington, can you discuss the exploits of the Surya under the command of Lieutenant Noel Anderson? R-A-N-V-R. So Saria was a river tug. Yarra had been operating with her for a few months, uh, particularly in the Iraq campaign. Lieutenant Noel Anderson had been mobilised in October 1939 and he'd obviously made a fairly good impression on the captain because he was reported as having above average ability. So when, he, when they sailed with Yarra on the morning of the operation, he had some troops embarked and a Royal Indian Navy boarding party. While waiting for Falmouth and her belated arrival, Saria experienced some shorefire, which they were able to suppress with the small arms and some Bren guns that they had on board. But they didn't uh, proceed with their attack and their intention to capture whatever Iranian vessels they could until Falmouth arrived. Once this happened, they proceeded alongside an Iranian tug. And during their first approach attempt, Anderson was actually wounded in the arm. And therefore, Saria missed the approach. One uh, lucky or unlucky sub-lieutenant from the boarding party found himself on board the tug Nehru all by himself, where he un undercame small arms fire and at one stage had a rifle pointed at his face. 
But as one contemporary described it, he was saved by his own quick reflexes and his service revolver. On the second attempt, Anderson got Surreal alongside the Iranian tug and the rest of the boarding party joined the sub-lieutenant. The Iranian tug was then captured after some small arms firing, with one of the Indian boarding party wounded and four of the Iranians wounded. One of these was the captain who later died of his injuries. 20 prisoners were taken, um, and it appears Noel Anderson was the only member of Yarra's ship's company who was wounded in the attack. Anderson actually remained with Yarra uh, until next year when she was sadly lost. Peter Cannon. Kanimbla was involved in the Bandar Shahpur operation. What happened there? Well, Bandar Shapur, Operation Bishop, it was actually the most ambitious of the Royal Navy's objectives. Now, as I mentioned before, the, uh, the whole aim of this was to take Bandar Shapur and secure the railhead. But those eight enemy ships sitting there were, um, were magnets to the um, Royal Navy. They were very, very keen on boarding and taking enemy ships. It was kind of what they did. Um, but it involved a navigationally risky approach up the treacherous Cormusa Channel, which was, um, as um, Bart has already mentioned, was, was a bit of a problem. And they opted to do this at night. So they needed that element of surprise, essentially, not to take the port. That was going to be easy, but it was to take the, um, the enemy merchant ships. So there was five German cargo ships, the Hohenfels, the Marienfels, Sturmfels, Wiesenfels, and Wildenfels, as long as three Italian tankers, the Barbara, the Bronte, and the Caboto. Um, as mentioned, surprise was going to be essential. So the two Iranian gunboats in the port, if they, were offered, if they offered any resistance, they were to be essentially to be brushed aside. Um, and all eyes were on the merchant ships, and that was pretty much all there was to it. So to secure the port, we've already mentioned the 3rd Battalion, 10th Balak Regiment, who had personnel on board Yarra. They've supplied the A and D companies, and they're embarked in Canimbala, and the idea was to go alongside the jetty in Bandishapur and land them to, to take the port. As mentioned, Canimbala was providing five boarding parties, but another three were being furnished by other ships involved in the operation. Firstly, there was one from the, um, the Indian Lawrence, and then one each from the, um, the British Cockchafer and Snapdragon. So the flotilla was led by Canimbala in order to overpower any units that they um, came across up the Kormusa, and they moved up the, um, the channel from the Persian Gulf on the evening of 24th of August. So just before dawn, Canimbala actually dropped back and let the small craft go ahead um, as they started racing towards the, um, the enemy ships. And the alarm wasn't raised until the last minute, just before number one boarding party was about to go alongside Hohenfels. Now, number, one's board, number one boarding party was under the control of the commander of Lieutenant Milne, RN, and actually included my grandfather. And as they went over the bulwarks of the German freighter, that's when the alarm went up and um, there was explosions, there was fire, there was flooding, and as the, all of the German and Italian ships started to um, essentially to sink, the Germans went in for flooding their ships and pulling out seacocks, opening valves, setting off demolition charges. The, uh, the Italians, on the other hand, they were more inclined to set their ships on fire and they, they did a pretty damn good job about it. So of the other Australian boarding teams, number two boarding party under Lieutenant William Netherton, R.A.N.R., they boarded Marienfels from the tug Delavar. Number three boarding party under Sub-Lieutenant Don Dykes, R.A.N.R.S. They were in launch number 20, the RAF launch, and they boarded Wildenfels. And I should mention as well the S on the end of R.A.N.R., RANR back then stood for seagoing, and these were essentially merchant service officers that joined the Navy um, under, under a particular scheme. So these guys understood merchant ships, um, how they were built, how they were constructed, so they were, they were ideal for these roles. Number four boarding party under Lieutenant Edward Hackford, RANR, they were in Dow 8, dressed as Arabs, and they boarded Barbara. And finally, number five boarding party under Sub-Lieutenant Derek Simon, RANRS. They were in the, um, the minesweeper, HMS Arthur Kavanagh, and they were supposed to board Bronte, but the tanker was so heavily on fire that they bypassed her and initially helped out trying to save the Barbara. Of the British units, Snapdragon boarded Sturmfels and Cockchafer went alongside Wiesenfels. But the problem for, um, with Wiesenfels was the Germans had already not only started flooding her, but they'd set a very large fire on Wiesenfels and they actually beat the, um, the British sailors back. So Snapdragon, sorry, Cockchafer's boarding party reboarded and they went off to capture a floating dock that happened to be there as well. And um, this floating dock went on to um, provide sterling service in East Africa as Admiralty Floating Dock Number 27. So the Indians and Lawrence, they captured the two gunboats quite easily. The Iranians um, weren't aware of what's going on. They didn't appear to react and they were taken without a shot being fired. So after that, Lawrence um, went on and helped um, take the Kaboto, the, um, the, um, other, one of the other Italian tankers. 
So instead of landing these troops, um, upon surveying the scene, uh, Captain Adams has decided to take Canimbla directly alongside the, um, the Bronte, which was heavily on fire, um, and use Canimbla's fire hoses and teams to actually try and extinguish that fire. So the, Itali- the Indian troops were trapped on board at this particular point. So Canimbla's veterans, many years later, they would um, tell highly amusing stories about capturing a train um, during this operation. It wasn't exactly the way it went down. There was a train in the railway station that attempted to escape, and Adams decided to fire on it with the um, 4026-inch. Now, the 4026-inch were the only guns he had left manned because of the rest of his teams he'd um, sent away on boarding parties. So even though they did fire on this train, most of the shells actually just lodged in the mud um, alongside the rail tracks and didn't detonate. So the train eventually did get away. The next into action were around aircraft crews um, as three aircraft were sighted. Um, the RAF had said, uh, we're not coming to bandish Shapur, so anything you see is going to be Iranian, so, so fill your boots, boys. It turned out to be three RAF hurricanes that decided to come over and have a bit of a look at operations. But luckily, those three-inch anti-aircraft guns were, well, with no control um, apparatus whatsoever, were only fired over open sites, and the Australian sailors didn't have much of a hope, and the RAF pilots were, were, were quite, um, quite safe. But off the axis shipping in the port, only one was lost, and that was Wiesenfels. Uh, the Germans had done a very good job on her, and despite firefighting efforts all day by a number of ships, um, she quietly sank the next morning, having burned to the, um, essentially not burned to the waterline, but she had burned out. Aboard Hohenfels, number one boarding party fought a losing battle with rising water in her engine room. Um, but luckily, there was um, some quick thinking, saw two of the Anglo-Iranian ore company tugs come alongside, lash themselves to Hohenfels and actually drag her up into a sandbank. So when she essentially sank, she only sank in, um, in, in shallow water and they were able to salvage her. So Canibula's crew spent the next six weeks salvaging that ship. Um, you know, one of the biggest salvage operations that turned out of the Second World War and um, the AMC managed to pull it off. Her diver was um, Petty Officer John Humphreys, and he actually won a George Medal for bravery in the process. Uh, he spent weeks diving in the engine room in zero visibility, just using his hands to try and find all the um, all the holes and um, re reput uh, valves back together and all sorts of crazy stuff. But he won the George Medal for that. So Wildenfels and Marienfels were captured intact because both boarding parties were well trained, well prepared, and they actually got to um, identified all the demolition measures that the Germans had taken and um, defused them. But the only fatalities of the, the operation was actually in Sturmfels. As Snapdragon went alongside, um, two German sailors were seen trying to set fires and the British machine guns opened up and, and killed both of them. So they took Sturmfels uh, without too much trouble. So the final tally actually stood at seven action, Axis merchantmen that were either steamed under their own power or towed to India to add their numbers to the, um, to the Allied merchant fleets. And additionally, the two Iranian gunboats that were captured were eventually commissioned into the Royal Indian Navy, and I've also mentioned that the um, the floating dock went on to see good service in um, East Africa. Well, it sounds like the crew certainly overcame their initial objections to leaving Australia quite aptly. And, uh, and the crew were very keen on doing this. There was a there very high morale. Um, as Bart said, lots of training, and um, they were very keen to, to play boarding parties for sure. Excellent. For the sake of completeness, we should mention the other three operations. Peter, can you briefly describe what happened? Well, firstly, I should mention the outcome of Crackler, which was, of course, the primary um, assault. Commodore Graham's uh, flotilla achieved complete surprise and landed their troops under the suppressing fire of all the um, auxiliary warships. That left Shoreham to engage Palang. Now, Palang was hit with one salvo and immediately caught fire, and her crew, um, crew abandoned the ship onto the jetty. Now, setting a large fire in an oil refinery wasn't exactly what the British had in mind. Um, so essentially, Shoreham's gunners had to keep firing until Palang sank into moorings to make sure the fire didn't spread. But um, that naval gunfire actually was, uh, was the primary reason why the quite considerable Iranian garrison deserted the island. They, they basically turned and ran, uh, which was in stark contrast to um, the Iranian soldiers manning all the, um, the initial posts, all the machine gun posts. In most cases, they actually fought to the last man and um, kept the Iranian, kept the Indian soldiers at bay for at least a day. The um, Indian um, soldiers didn't capture the refinery until the end of the day. So um, two very stark contrasts there from the um, Iranian army. But as far as mop-up went, the next day, 26th of August, uh, Commodore Graham took charge of that with Seabell, Shoreham and Lilavati. And they eventually rendezvoused with Indian army forces that were driving overland from Iraq. The second one, Karen River, uh, took place on the 29th of August. 
there was 800 troops and supplies that were transported up the river towards um, Arwaz. But by the time they got there, the Indian army had already taken the city and the city had already capitulated. But the last operation, um, and the one that mainly concerns us here with HMAS Yarra, was um, Bunder Abbas. So Yarra had sailed from Coronshah late on the 25th of August for the port of Bandar Abbas down the other end of the Gulf. Now there was the um, 4,900-ton Italian freighter Hilda, and she'd been there since the um, commencement of hostilities as well. So the idea was to take her um, in the middle of the night on the 27th to 28th of August because Yarra was unsupported, so they didn't really want to invite any um, Iranian reaction to this. But by the time they got there, the ship had already been scuttled. Um, her crew had abandoned and Arch and his team found the ship um, almost settling in the water and, and heavily on fire from, from stern, to, um, stern to bow. And trying to get the arrow alongside was impossible. There was too much heat. So instead of giving up, Arch decided he'd come back the next night and see, and, and see what, what the ship looked like, essentially, seeing whether the fires had died down, which is exactly what he did. And when they got alongside the following, following night, she was still on fire, but they managed to uh, lash themselves alongside Hilda, sent a whole heap of firefighting teams on board and actually got the, um, the fires under control. The flooding was, um, she was still flooding through the, uh, the stern gland and uh, the shaft tunnel, but they got the flooding under control enough to um, actually drag her out of the port in the middle of the night, um, lashed alongside Yarra, and actually got her out into the Persian Gulf and through the Straits of Hormuz out into the Gulf of Amman. So they were pretty happy with this at this particular point, but they still had to make it all the way to, um, to Karachi and that posed a problem. Over the next day or two, the weather got up and the flooding wasn't as under control as they thought it was. So the holes still continued to flood and Yarra's speed dropped from five knots to four knots and eventually down to about two knots. So Harrington was um, forced to turn um, turn for Chabar Bay, which was actually still in Iran, but by this time the Iranians had capitulated. So he actually um, put her aground in this bay and awaited the salvage tug from India to come and pick her up. So in that particular time, he'd been um, redesignated to go and escort the Barbara into Karachi, and Hilda was ended up um, ended up under the control of the salvage tug Sydney Thubron, and she got her all the way to India as well. So by 11th of September, um, Yarra finally ended up back in back in Bombay over five months after she was actually originally sailed to Basra, and that was five months, as the um, as my other panelists have said of ridiculously bad weather, sickness, malaria. Um, British sailors had actually died of malaria and heat stroke um, during that period in HMS Emerald in particular. Um, so by the time they got back to India, they were absolutely exhausted after a very, very big five months. But in that particular time, they had um, landed troops, carried out shore bombardments, sank an enemy sloop, captured gunboats and captured a scuttled um, Italian, uh, Italian ship. So they'd, they'd had a pretty big deployment, as we'd say it these days. Incredible stuff. These operations resulted in vital oil resources being secured. The Anglo-Soviet invasion of Iran resulted in Reza Shah abdicating his position on the 16th of September 1941 to be replaced by Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, his 21-year-old son. He, of course, reigned until overthrown by the 1979 Iranian Revolution. To conclude, I would like to ask the panel for their thoughts on the strategic importance and legacy of the in interventions in Iraq and Iran. Oh, look, I think there are, there are quite a number here. Um, firstly, it opened up a, a, a new supply route into uh, the Soviet Union uh, and it was no longer solely relied, reliant upon uh, going around the North Cape uh, of, of Norway. Um, as well as that, um, I, I think there's um, something to be said about the fact that the British and the Soviets could actually fight together. This would have been the first time that that happened and, and it would have helped cement what was a pretty tenuous alliance uh, anyway for the, the time of the war. Um, by neutralising that part of the world, it freed up a hell of a lot of troops and uh, a lot of the Indian Army, of course, ended up in Burma. And if, if that hadn't happened, uh, there wouldn't have been the troops to flight the Japanese which at this time was only weeks away from entering the war. Uh, so th there are some quite large strategic implications in all of that. Well, look, the restoration of a friendly regime in Iraq, as well as the invasion of Iran, it essentially snuffed out any further opportunities for German meddling in the Persian Gulf um, and an impact on the British war effort. Look, if Hitler wanted to damage the British Empire's war effort in that area, he was going to have to take it by force. 
And as it happened, having locked himself into a fight to the death with the Soviet Union, he never had the opportunity. So a little acknowledged factor in the USSR's ability to survive the German assault and essentially win the Second World War on land was the um, support that came in through that Bandishapur um, port up the railway into Iran, uh, sorry, into, into Russia. So by November 1942, 400,000 trucks, 27,000 aircraft, 28,800 tanks and half-tracks had been shipped to the USSR over this railway. And unless Hitler knocked the Soviets out of the war, the eventual defeat of Germany was assured. I'd make uh, two brief points uh, in conclusion. The first one is I think these operations are an excellent example of what a small uh, navy such as the RN can do uh, with much broader strategic consequences. It was able to contribute professional sailors, uh, small vessels of great utility that uh, were readily uh, brought into a combined force to great effect. The second point I'd make is Today we've discussed these interventions in the uh, framework of the Second World War, but for Iran and Iraq, these were just yet another series of foreign interference. And it's worth remembering that when you view the geopolitical state of that part of the world today. Sadly, that is all we have time for. My thanks to Simon Harrington, Bart Harrington and Peter Cannon. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the Uni University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Marine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you liked this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so that other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.